Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and study your word. Thank you for the needs of the body that we can share. Um, that because of the work you've done in the hearts of believers, we seek to show the grace of Christ in action. And I pray that our hearts continue to be drawn to uh, works of mercy and um, works of help to those in need. Realizing that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by these acts at all. We're saved solely by your sovereign grace in our lives. And we're thankful that you have shown us mercy. I pray that you would show us more of that mercy this morning as we approach this text, that you would give us insight and wisdom, and that you would warm our hearts to the beauties of Jesus this morning. pray for all these things in His name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 18. We're going to finish the chapter today. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. Starting in verse 18, last week we saw Paul in Corinth... And uh, how he was mercifully delivered from oppression there that was uh, brought about by the Jews. Uh, he had the hearing in front of Gallio, all of that. Remember that from last time. <clears throat> and instead of Paul getting beat with rods, which is his normal practice, somebody else got beat, the, uh, the leader of the synagogue um, there. And so Paul is able to stay in Corinth for quite a while. Just free range. He realizes because of Gallio's refusal to hear the case, it gives Paul kind of this open forum to preach the gospel there in Corinth and not uh, be um, harmed by the Jews. So today, Luke tells us of the last leg of Paul's second missionary journey, and, and we see the transition of that today, and then a, a push into the third and final missionary journey that we have in Acts. We'll also be introduced to the author of Hebrews. So let's look at... Oh, he is. Verse 18. We'll start there. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at hmm, Syncre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And then came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. We'll stop there. If you want to see... Concrete evidence of the importance of Gallio's refusal to hear that case. There it is. Paul's staying there for a long time. Um, and he continued to witness there unhindered. He's, it's going well. Why is he leaving? Why would he leave? Well, we don't know. Um, there, I mean, this is kind of Paul's goal all along, hasn't it? To, been, to find a, a major city, set up shop, and press out. And he's got that with Corinth to the west. It's kind of the gateway to the west there from, uh, from that area. 
He's got all of this going for him. It's going well. He's there. He's got protection, basically, from this ruling from Gallio. And yet he leaves. Some scholars think that what he was trying to do was get back to Judea in time for Passover. About the time here, um, it would be in March or, or early February or late February. And the seas get shut off about that time because the weather gets really bad. And so they stop sailing. Uh, in about March 10th. Passover at this time would, they've calculated it would be around April. So there's a, there's a push to get back home to report what's going on among the Gentiles and to be part of Passover at this time. So that's kind of what the thought is, but we really just don't know. He picks up and he goes. Um, he refers to, Luke refers to Syria, and he could be referring to the province, that whole province that, that includes Judea. Uh, but he could also be uh, referring to Antioch, Poseidon Antioch, that's that, that country as well, Syri um, Syria. Antioch is his final destination ultimately. So Luke tells us that Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul to Ephesus, and then he decides on a new look for the journey. Why is he cutting his hair, and what is he doing with his vow? What's going on there? There is Nazarite. Vow. There is. What do you know? What that is involved? What's involved with that? You shave your head. You you shave your head or you don't shave your head. You don't shave. You don't shave your head. That's right. Until you're done with a vow, then you then you go buzz cut on it. Yeah, exactly. Clint, Clint's right on. Uh, on the nose. That's right. And we'll learn about that in number six when we get there. Um, little little taste. Uh, and yeah, there's a vow going on here that Paul has taken and completed. What do you think the vow would be? There's, we don't know. I mean, but there's some speculation as what this this might be related to um, here. It could be cross reference to number six, right? So, and that's the Nazarite vow. Yeah, so could be something about strong drink. And well, could, I mean, the function of it, yes, could be strong drink. But why would he take a vow? I mean, he's a Christian. He's, well, he's. He's Let your yes be yes, your no be no, he would say. Probably during this entire missionary journey he's been under the vow, and that's to, to align his thinking with God and make sure he's doing what he needs to be doing. There's some of that, maybe. To show the Jews that he's serious about it, that he's, you know, he's still a Jew, and so that he hasn't completely just shoved off all the traditional stuff, yet there, there's not, there's not, you know, any saving merit to it, right. but he's showing them, hey, I can still do this. No, I think that's an important point. I think it's a very important point. He, he, some scholars think the reason for the vow is related to the vision he gets in Corinth, where it says no harm is going to come to you there. It's more of a vow of thanksgiving. Get me through this, and I'll be thankful. Um, and yet, in, in Luke makes, I mean, why, why include this detail? It has nothing to do with travel plans. I mean, whether he travels to Ephesus or not has nothing to do with his hair. But the issue is, he's still Jewish. He's still, I mean, he's been working among Gentiles. He's been, you know, telling them that, you know, you don't, you, you don't have to take on the law to be saved, you, to be a Christian, you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. And yet, he's still very Jewish in his expression of this this is one of the things that James asked him to do. We'll see this in a few chapters later. Asked him to do in order to, to appease the legalistic Jewish Christians in Jerusalem when he goes to visit Jerusalem for the last time. 
um, he says, take on a Nazarite vow and go purify yourself at the temple, you know, with these guys to kind of show them that you're, you're not encouraging Jews to for, forsake the law of Moses, which he wasn't. And he's clearly being very Jewish here with this. Um, some in the, some of the Latin translations uh, were offended by this, and they tried to make it look like Aquila was the one getting his hair done did, and it wasn't. It, it, it's, the text is very clear. It's Paul. They were concerned that that's just too Jewish, and Paul, you know, we don't want Paul to be too Jewish, apparently, in the New Testament. So, but we have texts that show clearly. In the earlier we go back, we see the text clearly says that Paul was the one who took this vow. Um, and Luke's not condemning Paul here for doing it. Uh, here's, the, here's the thing that I think is, is cool. You don't lose your culture just because of Christ. He's still Jewish. Uh, if that's true for Paul, it's true for Africans. It's true for, it's true for, uh, it's true for Indians. It's true for Koreans and even Americans. We don't lose our culture in other words, Christianity is about making the world America, right? <laughs> it's about making the world conform to the image of Christ. You, you have Paul continuing to be Jewish, but he's not requiring that of the Ephesians. He's not requiring that of, of uh, the Corinthians. It's looking like Jesus in their context, in their context and culture. Um, and things may be in the culture that need to be shed, and he talks about that to the church at Corinth. This is part of your culture, but this does not conform to Christ. We need to lose this. And if Paul were to write a, you know, a letter to America today, there would be things in the culture <laughs> that he would say, lose this. This is not conforming to Christ. But there are things that, that are just part of us that are not contrary to the gospel. They're just... And that's okay. Um... He doesn't completely follow the culture here because the way the Nazarite vow, if you read in number six, the way the Nazarite vow works is you cut your hair at the temple, offer a sacrifice and throw the hair on, they don't have locks of love, they just throw it on the burning pyre on the, on the altar. It's part of the offering that you give. Well, Paul doesn't wait to get to Jerusalem to do this. He gets out of Corinth, he's safe. And he does it then. Why wouldn't he do the, the temple thing? Time is coming where you will not have to meet on this hill or that hill, my father's house, but you can worship the Lord anywhere. Maybe there's that. The Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. Although later on, James does encourage him to go to the temple of the Nazarite vow and offer sacrifices. So it's not, he's, there's still some of that going on. But the thing is, it's not necessary. He realizes that, I mean, the gospel has informed his understanding of his culture to where these things are not necessary for right relationship with God. It's a cultural thing. And so he doesn't do it here. And Josephus kind of gives us a clue that some, at this time some of the Nazarite vow guys weren't going to the temple. So it was still consistent with Jewishness. But it was, and he's a strict Pharisaical Jew coming out of that. He would have probably had a natural inclination to go to the temple. He doesn't do it because it's not necessary uh, with, with the gospel. Yeah? Uh, I kind of skimmed number six, and it talks about staying separate and staying clean, not mm -hmm. unclean. Being around dead people or Gentiles, mm -hmm. preaching to the Gentiles. Yeah. So, I mean, he's not following it to the letter. But right. 
think more of devotion. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, it, again, it's the Jewish feel, but informed by the gospel. It's culture informed by the gospel that you're seeing there. Um, all right. Nevertheless, he is in uh, Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, and then he leaves them there. And it's a, and and what does he do next? What does it say? He's there in Ephesus. What are the odds? And he goes and reasons with Jews in the synagogue. Now, is that uh, is that a good venture? Is he looking? Things are looking pretty good for him there. It appears so, since they asked him to stay here for a little while. Seem very receptive, don't they? And what does he say? No. Bye bye. He leaves. Why would he leave? Again, scholars think it's this push to get to Passover in Judea. Um, and it sets the stage for his third journey. Corinth is the gateway to the west. Ephesus is the gateway to the east. And that's where he's going to set up shop in the third journey. So there's this anticipation of where he's going. How does he, uh, how does he respond to them? He doesn't just say, no, see ya. If God wills. Lord will and the creek don't rise, what he says. Basically, this is a Greek phrase that was, that was co-opted by Hellenistic Jews, God willing, um, which I found interesting. And it really has nothing else to further lesson, but I just thought it was interesting. All right. So he, he sails. He lands in Caesarea, and we see Luke using that familiar language that Paul went up and greeted the church. What do you think he's referring to? Where? In Jerusalem. Why would it say go up in Jerusalem? Because it's uphill. It's uphill. That's a typical Jewish language talking about Jerusalem. He go up Mount Zion to Jerusalem. And that's the reference here. It's he goes up to the church. He goes to the church at Jerusalem and gives them a report of all of the things that God is doing on his second missionary journey. Now, this is the cool thing. He starts in Antioch on each of these journeys, first, second, and third. Starts from Antioch. That's a missionary church that sends him out. He ends, he returns to the church at Jerusalem every time to report to them where the, the, the mother church, so to speak, is. To report to them of what's going on in the Gentile world. They're pretty isolated. I say isolated. They're not moving out in Jerusalem. Uh, or at least Luke doesn't record that they're moving out too much. They're mainly there. Uh, ministering in Judea. And then he goes back to Antioch uh, where he gets some R&R a little bit. Let's look at verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being, a, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him 
and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So when we say he took a little break in Antioch, we're not kidding. He's back at it. Verse 23, um, and, and again, Luke is so economic with his words here. The language between verse 22 and 23, and then again in 19.1, we'll see, that's a distance of about 1,500 miles. And Luke handles it in three verses. It seems that when he's not traveling with Paul, he's a lot more succinct about the travels. You know, I don't know, maybe he has fewer stories, but he gets to it. Uh, why is Paul traveling by foot through these places? If he's heading back to Ephesus, it would seem that travel by sea would be a lot more efficient. Why do you think he's traveling by land here? What's he doing? Are there towns that he's ministering to? Yeah, these areas that he had been before. What does it say he's doing in these areas? Strengthening the disciples. What does that mean? He's encouraging. These are these are believers who had be, who had come to faith under his ministry, but he's got a new thing he's going to. He's heading to Ephesus for the new thing. Why is he going through here? Does that not set for us a model for the importance of nurturing new converts? I mean, he's on to bigger and better things in Ephesus, right? He's being really intentional. Yeah. He's making sure that. To, to, to not just convert them and then leave. You know. Right. He wants to make disciples. Right. These aren't notches in <laughs> his not belt. Just, it's, just, it's not just converts that he wants. He wants followers of Christ. Right. He wants people growing yep. and conforming and all reaching to the maturity of the image of Christ. And that's what we're seeing here. Again, he's setting the, the model of what that's to look like. We don't just do this massive push, have a bunch of people confess and, and do like an altar call thing, and they move on to the next town forgetting those behind. There has to be cultivation. There has to be nurturing. There has to be discipling. And you see Paul very intentional about that here, setting out the model. Um, Corinth was, like we said, the gateway of the west. Ephesus will be the gateway of the east, and that's where he'll spend most of his time on the third journey. And that's going to take us through chapter 21, verse 16. Um, and yet in the midst of this, Paul's push to get to Ephesus, Luke finds it very important to make a note of this guy, Apollos. I mean, I don't know where this guy is on the scene. He apparently was pretty significant in the early church, and I, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, 1 Corinthians tends to be named quite a bit. Um, what does Luke tell us about Apollos? He's from Alexandria. Is that Egypt? That is Egypt. Yeah. Is he, nationality, he's a... Jew. He's a Jew from Alexandria. No, not at all. Come on. <laughs> we would normally start about now anyway, so you're good. Um, he's a Jew from Alexandria. That's Egypt. What does that tell you about the status of the gospel in the world at that time? It's what? It's flying. It's in Egypt. We have no record of how it got there. We have no historical data at all how it got to Alexandria. Um, and yet we see here a believer coming from Alexandria to Ephesus to minister. And he's got some 
knowledge of the gospel. He's got some knowledge of the history of Christ. Uh, he's apparently, what else does it tell us? He's eloquent. He's eloquent. The word there actually means very learned. What else? What else does it say? Common to the scripture. What? He's confident in the scripture. The word there would mean very powerful. Has the idea of he thoroughly knows the scripture, well versed. And then it says this. What, did, what does it say? The third thing. He only in the fervent, fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. We'll take that in a minute. Fervent in spirit. Do you have a textual note? I have a textual note. Yeah. Yeah. Fervent in, in the, the spirit. spirit. In the spirit. So there's a difference, isn't there, between being fervent in spirit? Hey, he's a really charismatic guy. Yeah. He's a force to be reckoned with whenever he speaks. Or fervent in the Spirit. What would that indicate? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This gives scholars fits. Yeah, because it, you know, it's lowercase s, Spirit. So is it talking about the Holy Spirit or is it talking about the Spirit of Man? There's a definite article there. Yeah. And usually when Paul or Luke or somebody talks about the Spirit, they're talking about the Holy Spirit. What's the problem with that as it relates to Apollos at this moment? He only knows the baptism of John. He only knows the baptism of John. What does that mean? He's probably a disciple of John. And we see in chapter 19 that Paul will run into some disciples of John. That becomes an issue. What does that mean? Is he not a believer? He probably is. He's probably just, probably just followed John and understood like... John was the messenger of the Messiah and believed in Jesus through John. Okay. Um, but was because he wasn't a follower, he wasn't a, a, a disciple of, of Christ while Christ was living on the earth, um, he was probably a little bit uh, ignorant of some things. There's something deficient in his teaching. Yeah. Something's not quite right. Yeah. I think he is a believer. Okay. I think John the Baptist would have definitely <laughs> spoken the gospel to him. Sure. But I would imagine he's not learned enough to present the gospel to everybody, which is why they're nitpicky on his theology. Yeah. Well, why do we know that they think he was a believer? What do they not ask him to do? Why do they not have baptized. him? He didn't have to be baptized. That Luke doesn't record him being rebaptized. He does record the disciples of John that Paul runs into being rebaptized under the baptism of Christ. So there's something that's deficient in his teaching, but it's not to the extent that he's having to be rebaptized. So there, so we get the feeling from Luke that Apollos at this point is a believer, but there's just some kind of there's, and we don't know what it is. Yeah. Some speculate. It drives me nuts. Some speculate, some speculate that it deals with um, that, that, that there's some where he, he understands the teaching of Jesus, but there's some aspects of the messiahship, the kingship of Jesus that he doesn't quite, maybe not get. Well, I mean, even, even John the Baptist had, had questions. You know, sure. He, he questioned, is, is he really the Christ? Yeah. Uh, uh, or do we look for another, he said. Or, we, or should we look for another? Right. Because, because they were expecting somebody that looked different than Christ. Right. Some some speculate too that Paul uh, Paul's understanding of the gospel going to Gentiles and not just Jews uh, that there was some uh, clarification that Apollos needed on that front. Nevertheless, you have um, you have uh, 
this question of how can you only understand the baptism of John and yet have received the Holy Spirit? It's confusing. Right. So he did understand who, I mean, if it, he's teaching accurately mm -hmm. who Jesus was yeah. and what he did, it does lead to question, well, what was he getting wrong? Yeah, exactly. Maybe he baptized babies. May, oh. <laughs> There's that baptism of John. It was John the Presbyterian, not the Baptist. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of people that know the orthodoxy of Christ that may not have everything, you know, within the scriptures biblical. You know, like Philip says, there's four or five things that are that are core issues. Orthodoxy, yeah. but the rest is not. So, right. I mean, we we can get some things, some ancillary things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But still know Christ. Yeah, I think that this is this is proof that you don't have to have one hundred percent perfect doctrine. Right. You don't have to know everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's not what it's all about. It's about loving Jesus, understanding who Jesus is, understanding what He did on the cross, um, and putting your trust in that. Right. Um, that is primary. Yeah. Always. And then any doctrinal stuff is secondary, but it is important. It's just not the most important. Two things here. One. Uh, this is why I can call an Arminian my brother. Yes. Uh, two, well, three things. Two, what does that say about Apollos? That he would be instructed. He was teachable. He's humble. He has, here's a man with incredible gifts. He's learned. He's eloquent. He's uh, a very fervent speaker, if you take the NIV translation versus the Spirit. Uh, he's very... Um, engaging the, the the idea is he's a, he's just he's a rock star and yet he's humble enough to be taught by Priscilla and Aquila's tent makers in Ephesus third point Luke gives equal billing to Priscilla for instructing Apollos just let that sink in I'm just pointing it out. I think it also shows his humility and that he he apparently asked permission to to go to Achaia to to keep he, he's he's seeking to be commissioned by the church to go. He's under the authority of the church before he just runs off and does his own thing. Right. And are they happy with him going? Yeah, what does that tell you that they would do that? What does that tell you about the, uh, about the, 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 the fact that brothers in Ephesus would write a letter to Achaia? Is, he's really talking about Corinth. What does that tell you about uh, two things it should tell you? One, they trust him in his doctrine. One, they trust him in his doctrine. So there's this confirmation of who he is and, and his, his, where he is doctrinally. What else? They're, they're unified in their missional mindset. They're unified. Okay, third thing would be, there's actually a church in Ephesus yeah. at this point. And it's got enough structure. And Paul's not even there yet. 
Priscilla and Aquila have been doing some work. There's a church in Ephesus. It's got hierarchy. It's got leadership. It has growth going on. Such that they can send a letter. By the way, this is the warrant we have for I'm, I'm affirmed in the Baptist church by letter. This is the... I'm kidding. That's not where we get... Anyway, that's a procedural issue. Um, but they have enough wherewithal as a body. They're cohesive enough to have this movement, to, to be able to write to another sister church in Corinth. This is a good guy. We recommend him to you. Let him encourage you. Be, receive him and encourage him for what he's doing. Um, Incidentally, Paul, Paul, just bring this point out, Paul did the same kind of letter of commendation for Phoebe in Romans 16. Just put that out. Okay, so Apollos is received by the believers in Corinth. and uh, Apollos is received by the believers in Corinth and, and is a great help to them. How does Luke describe the believers there in Achaia, in Corinth? What is, he, what is the descriptor he uses? Who what? Grace. Who through grace had believed? Is that a little theological insight by Luke? History informed by theology. What does he mean? We got Paul doing the vow, cutting his hair, moving on, and yet Luke still brings it back to Paul's gospel, which is Faith alone, by grace alone, through, wait, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul's reformational. Already, uh, I say already, we're seeing this language again and again, how they characterize those who are in the body of Christ. It's not because they're awesomely awesome. It's not because they're fervent in spirit. It's not because they're eloquent or learned. It's by grace, through faith in Christ, that they have believed. And that's consistent. It's what we'd expect from those who've been transformed or changed by Paul's gospel. That's what he preached through grace. So Luke, uh, Luke brings that out. And so Apollos' gifts and scriptural interpretation suited him for what task? What is he doing in Achaia? Powerfully refuting the Jews. He's going Paul on them, right? He's doing Paul's shtick to the Jews in Achaia. He's preaching Hebrews. Is this, yeah, is this one of the reasons why you believe he's the author? That and Martin Luther. Um, I, I align with Martin Luther on this one. Nobody's told him he's wrong. Because you don't tell Luther he's wrong, apparently. So he's going to debate the Jews in Corinth. And he would use those texts that we discussed earlier, like Isaiah 52 and 53, to demonstrate that the Messiah must suffer and rise, and that only Jesus fits this description. Although Luke doesn't mention it here, uh, Apollos does return to Ephesus. We see Paul mention that Apollos is with him in, in Ephesus when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16. So there, there is this back and forth between Ephesus and Corinth, uh, that's referenced in the Pauline letters. What really is interesting to me about this, Paul doesn't seem threatened by Apollos. You've got a guy who's very engaging, very dynamic, 
well versed in scripture, uh, apparently younger. I mean, that's the, the feel we get. We don't know for certain, but apparently younger. Up and coming, he doesn't have all the scarring that Paul has from the beatings and the whippings and all this stuff. He's a fairly polished guy. Uh, apparently not weak in speech when he's present with people, like Paul talks about himself. Bold in letters, but I'm weak in, among you. Paul's probably not afflicted by this timidity that Paul was wrestling with, with Corinth. Um, th there's no carving out of turf with Paul. I've got Ephesus and Corinth. Why don't you go north to Ireland? You know, there's none of that. There's a there's a recognition with Paul of who ultimately causes the church to grow. He says to the Corinthians, "I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth." And I think that's a great summary of the whole section that we just read. This is, a, this is just a recap of, it's not Paul being awesome that you have all these churches springing up. It's not Apollos being awesome that you have this encouragement and this re refutation of the Jews and all this great apologetic work that he's doing. It's because of the grace that was given to those who believe. And that's what they're tending to. That's what they're nurturing. These who have come to faith by grace, the sovereign grace of God, they're being tended to by these workers in the church. And that's something to remember. Um, leadership comes and goes. Churches grow and fade. But the grace of God remains. And we ought not put our hope in an Apollos or a Paul. We put our hope in Christ, in Christ alone. It's very easy to get caught up into the charisma of people sometimes. Um, I, I love John Piper. I love John MacArthur. Those guys will not be with us forever. But the church will continue when their time to finish their course has come. We shouldn't put our hopes in all the rock star preachers, I guess is the point I'm making. It's they plant, they water, but it's always God who gives the increase. And he'll find another one to plant and another one to water when those guys have run their course. And it's the same locally. Are we working toward that goal? Um, are we striving after being planters and waterers in the kingdom? Any questions, any comments? Is it, I'm trying to remember later on in Acts, there's a church, it might be Ephesus, where there's like five pastors, there's five lead speakers. Paul's one, Apollos is one. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, it might be Priscilla, there's like five of them. And, um, and you're right, there's no carving out of turf. There's five, it seems, equal leaders, equal yeah. leaders. Now the Corinthians try to carve out turf. They try to say, oh, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul or whatever, and Paul puts the kibosh on that. I mean, he's instructing them on that's not the way we do things. But you're right, I think the leadership is very much, he's got gifts that I don't have, God bless him, go forward. I'm going to work in, my, you know, in the field this way. This third journey that we're about to get onto the, the, through chapter 21, uh, it's not as um, dynamic as the other two. 
it's really just a picture of garden tending. There's just a lot of non, um, I don't know what the right word is, cinematic stuff, I guess, I don't know. Uh, it's just garden tending. You see chapter 19, he's, it spends, it's all in Ephesus. Uh, there's, some, there's some stuff going on with the, the Ephesians, the, the mob outside. That gets kind of cool. Um, but mainly, it's just commending, encouraging, growing. And then we have the rest of Acts where it's this long, slow, painful journey to Rome. Mid-21 all the way to 28. It's just this, it's almost like the, the, um, the march in the Passion of Christ. You see this picture of Paul going to Rome. And that becomes interesting. It's a long, a lot of travel stuff going on there. But really this section, this last journey, is, is, is fairly uneventful except for the, the, the Union Guild, which Union always causes trouble, in, in Ephesus. Uh, you see that that story, but mainly it's it's a it's a tending, nurturing, growth kind of thing. So, and that's typically how church life is. It's typically should be <laughs> uneventful. But anyway, yeah. Yes, um, I was thinking about an earlier question uh, about Paulus about Alexander, how the church got to that place. Now. Uh, one mistake. So my thought, now, if I remember so correct, did did we already in the early early chapters of Acts? Did we already talk about the? Uh, does I already talk about the uh, the unit the uh, Ethiopian eunuch? Yeah, yeah. talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. So uh, or about them? We didn't talk so to him. Could it be possible that it was an Ethiopian eunuch? There's lots of possibilities. That, but also Alexandra is a port city. Sure. And and one thing I remember is that Alexander is also kind of a university city. Sure. There is also the Library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. So from there, the, the kind of the culture there is uh, a very learned court culture. Right. And I and I think about this guy. This guy came from a town that is of thought. Yeah. And think of grand thinking. Yep. So. That bit, that culture influenced him, and that was the focus of Christ in his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that the, he he uses that attitude to learning that you you might have from sure. the area of Alexandria. Sure. And that's how he became king. He certainly bears the marks of his culture. You're right about that. I mean, there, there is a, a focus on it on being. Being, as we say in Texas, educated, he's certainly very well learned. What what the scholars have trouble with is how does the gospel get to Alexander? We don't have any we don't have any documented record of that. But what I, the the cool thing about that is that is yeah God, somebody watered somebody planted. We're not this unnamed person, this unremembered person, this Paul to Egypt. Uh, goes there, and this is going on, and we have no record of it, but how good and gracious is Christ to save people in Egypt that, and nobody gets really the glory for it. The this, this things that we have in Acts, I have, a, I have a 
just in my head, the way I vision it is, this is one story. This is one vein of evangelism that went on. I mean, some people think that Thomas made it to India. You know, I don't know. But there's, there's some evidence of maybe that, that going on. Uh, who knows how far Philip went? Um, who knows how far some of these other guys that aren't named just go? They feel moved. They get this calling that Paul did, maybe, to be an apostle to Africa, to be an apostle to whatever. And, and sometimes they cross. Apollos, who knows how far he went? Some people think he kind of stayed in that Corinthians, uh, 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 Corinth, Ephesus area. Some people think he went. We don't know. But how gracious is Christ that these people are being evangelized by people we, we don't... Calvin said, bury me in an unmarked grave. I don't even want to. I, I don't want people to come visit my grave. I want Christ to be known. Yeah. So, so why? Uh, I'm wondering why Luke was very, very specific about basically going through mainly the life of Paul mm -hmm. through all of Paul's journeys, right. as opposed to any of the other, any of the other apostles. It, it may be that he was the most familiar with Paul, having traveled with him. Yeah. It may be just that. God I mean, it's him to write about Paul. ultimately yes, but it's through means. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess you're saying the ultimate answer is Jesus. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Okay, yes, yes, but there are but there are means by which that happens in time and space, and so you know maybe that's the uh, oh excellent Theophilus uh, just wanted to know about Paul, yeah. and maybe he was at the end of it uh, was one of the judiciary presiding over Paul's case and needed an account and so they got Luke the physician to give an account an orderly account of what had happened and who he was we don't know we don't know but but ultimately Jesus I, I, I mean it's, it's all just stories you know? yeah it's all stories that's all it is so any anything else any any other heretical things we can say in <laughs> class this morning before we go on to kind of going over um, like where I think it would be more of just like a like kind of an in-between uh, like books sort of thing of like where like the sort of theories of where people might have gone like you mentioned uh, somebody going to India mm -hmm. I think it would be interesting uh, I, I doubt that no. there's Thomas that went there I don't a great uh, two great sources on that one uh, Eusebius third century historian although he makes a lot out of Constantine that he shouldn't nevertheless a lot of the history is proven to be fairly reliable that, that he did so he'd be a great source for probably being closer in time of where these guys were going Fox's Book of Martyrs is another one Eusebius and what? Eusebius? And Fox's Book of Martyrs? Fox's Book of Martyrs. Yeah. Yeah, especially the first few chapters there um, that, that bring you up to the third century. Kind of give a... Where people die is usually where they were ministering. <laughs> so he tends to go through the, the at least the church history or the, the, I would say in some instances, legend of where these guys went. We don't know for certain. Um, 
otherwise I could I could say certainly here we have this here we have that but that they did increase yeah they did no no the what no okay that's another that's another topic that you just blew open it's 1015 I'm gonna pray now I redact that. <laughs> You're killing me. Absolutely killing me. All right, let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace that has been um, displayed and spread abroad across the world. There is, in our day, um, an incredible realization of the fruitfulness of the gospel in the world today. We thank you that we can see that. And we pray that we'd be a part of it, that you would help us in being bold to proclaim um, in our area, in our time, the beauties of Jesus and what he's done for us. I pray for the needs in this class that you would um, provide what is needed so that we're not distracted with clothes or food or housing, but that we can be committed and free to be um, ministers, ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ. I pray for the service that's about to take place, that your word would be boldly preached, humbly received, and that hearts would change. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.